Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, as we come to your common table today, may you remind us of who is not yet here, and may you remind us that all belong. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, during the first few weeks of fall every year, we take time as a community to remember the distinctives that make us Pearl Church. One of, to me, the most unique parts of the DNA of Pearl Church is that we don't ask people to affirm a specific doctrinal statement in order to belong here. Instead, we invite people to commit their lives to a common rhythm, a rhythm which we find in the life and the way of Jesus. Expressing a sacred story, extending a common table, and being animated by divine love. It's not that what we believe is unimportant. Uh, That's not true, but belief in our culture has come to mean mere cognitive assent. And what shapes our lives is not what you would bubble in on a scantron sheet if you were asked, or what you would recite in a confession of faith. What shapes us is how we live our days, are ours in small ways, day after day, moment after moment, for years, habit and rhythm. And so this rhythm of sacred story, common table, and divine love invites us to orient not just our thoughts, but our whole way of being around Jesus. Last week, Mike spoke on sacred story, and today we're turning our attention to common table. This rhythm of extending and sharing a common table where all belong is the centerpiece of our service. Uh, For as much care as Mike and I try to put into these sermons, the sermon is not the high point of our uh, service together. Thanks be to God. The high point is Eucharist. The high point is coming together around a common table, a shared meal, where God is the one who is giving and giving and giving to all and to any out of abundant love. I want to read this poem by George Herbert. Uh, Some of you may have heard this before. It's called Love Number Three. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, 
Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. You see, this table, this common table, above all, is not our table. It's God's table. And we are, all of us, here because God deeply wants us to be here. To me, the common table is among the most treasured experiences of my life. And I want to start by sharing a few different tables that, in my life, have shown forth the beauty of the common table and why it's such a revolutionary force in the world and a high point of our community. Throughout COVID, I think we all suffered from a lack of common tables, didn't we? Remember when we thought we'd be back here by Easter 2020? For more than a year, we couldn't share tables in our homes. We couldn't dine together in restaurants. We couldn't share Eucharist together in person. For me, one of the things that got me through the pandemic was my little COVID pod. I don't know if any of you had a COVID pod, but uh, by the sheer grace of God, I had just started dating my now husband, Gary, uh, a few weeks before. And uh, like it was, you know, we started dating and then it was like, and quarantine. So we got domestic real fast. And so the world shut down and my world shrunk to the size of Gary and his housemates. Now, to my delight, Gary and Tom and Jake and Kari had a rhythm of every Monday night sharing a meal, cooking together and sharing a meal. And I was invited to join them. And so week in and week out, we planned menus, we cooked elaborate feasts that none of us could have pulled off on our own, and we enjoyed incredible food together. And we sat together and we talked. We talked about our loneliness and our longings, our joys and our fears. We danced in the kitchen, and we drank wine, lots of wine, and we laughed. In an ocean of isolation, that dinner table was a life raft of connection and belonging for me, a single bright point of joy in the dark night of COVID. So when Gary and I were married six months ago, six months, wow, uh, we wanted nothing more than to share that experience with our closest loved ones. And so our wedding took place at a table, this big farmhouse table in a U where we sat and we ate and we laughed and we drank. To us, that wedding was common table. In fact, we started off the wedding with the invitation liturgy for the Eucharist that we use at Pearl. And then at the table, we stood and were married. For me, this was an intentional reference to Revelation 19, where the consummation of peace is described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It was joyful. And it was also a vulnerable table. Because there were, in a sense, some empty seats there. Not everyone we wished to be at our table was willing Not everyone we love chose to support our marriage. We had to decide to set a table where all were welcome, knowing that not everyone would receive that welcome. Not everyone would welcome us in return. One more table. Uh, Over the last seven years, I've been honored to serve as a spiritual director for an event called Oriented to Love. So a few times a year, for one weekend, we gather a group of 12 Christ followers, 
and half are LGBTQIA and half are straight. And of that group, again, half are affirming and half have a traditional or conservative sexual ethic. And for a weekend, we tell our stories and we ask questions. And the aim is not to change minds, but to truly hear one another. Now, you can imagine this is not easy. Uh, it's vulnerable. There are many tears. There's frustration as we hold together what is a very painful tension in the church right now at one table. And also, as we eat together, as we talk together, as we weep together, slowly each member of the group begins to see one another, not as enemy, not as other, but as the beloved of God. And I have seen incredible love and acceptance flow, even where the theology is vastly incompatible. And this too feels like a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, as I tell these stories, what comes up for me is not only the beauty of the common table, but also its challenges. You see, when we live in a time in history where the question, who gets to sit at the table, who belongs, that question is for the first time beginning to be answered, everyone. Everyone belongs. And when I say for the first time, I mean it. This is a unique moment in history where more and more and more people are saying everyone should belong at this table. No one's excluded based on culture or race or gender or orientation or whatever. And it's a beautiful dream. And it's an exceptional challenge. On one hand, one of the challenges of the common table for us who would be seated there is vulnerability. It's a vulnerable act to set a table and then invite. Uh, as Gary and I learned and are still learning through our marriage, just because we want a table where all belong doesn't mean that everyone we love wants to be seated at that table. And not everyone is going to invite us in return. And that can be deeply painful and distressing. I think common table is especially vulnerable for those of us who've experienced exclusion from tables in the past for whatever reason. Uh, you may sit here and hear us say at the beginning of every service, there's room here for every part of you. And you may think, mm, really? Really? Because our previous experiences of exclusion can make it very hard for us to believe that we are now truly included. For me, the first two years I attended Pearl as an out gay man, I just wept. I just wept at Eucharist, and usually the sermon, and the songs, and the call to work. Yeah, I would just weep the whole time. It took ages for it to settle all the way down into my soul that, yes, I really belong at this table, all of me. Whether it's our sexuality, or our doctrine, or our lack of doctrine, or our health, or our race, or our gender, or any number of things, hoping for belonging may feel very tender. In this space, I would offer us the words of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. See, the common table we practice at Pearl, again, is not our table. It's God's table. And so however we may fall short in extending that table, however we may exclude intentionally or unintentionally, God is lovingly pulling up a chair that we forgot or chose not to include and saying, this is my table. 
and I want you here, and you are safe with me. So one challenge of the common table is that it calls us into vulnerability. But as you've seen, another of the challenges of the common table is that it calls us into humility. Because those, well, those of us who are called Pearl Home, we love the common table. I mean, it's one of the things I hear all the time. I love, I love this common table. I love this inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. Everyone loves inclusion. And we feel the warmth and the approval and the idea that everyone is welcome and in all kindness and love, it still remains true that for each of us, there are people we would rather not see at the common table. Maybe it's those who have hurt us. Maybe it's traditions that we've come out of that have been harmful to us, and we fled. Maybe it's those with political disagreement or theological disagreement. Maybe it's the people that we would like to cancel or the people who make us uncomfortable. There's so many people that, in theory, we believe we want at our table. When they show up, we're like, ooh, this is dicey. I don't know. This is awkward and weird. No matter how far we've come, the common table remains counterintuitive and offensive to our cultural norms and scripts. And this shouldn't be a surprise. This was Jesus' experience, too. One of the most common reactions to Jesus from the upstanding Jewish people in his day was moral shock. He dines with sinners and tax collectors. Oh, if he knew who this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus used this outrage at his behavior as a means of teaching the ways of the kingdom of God. A good number of Jesus' parables and teachings center around tables and food. For example, Jesus teaches, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, is this a law? Is this a rule? I know some of you would like it to be. See, Jesus said, I can't invite my family. It's, it's, it's there in red letters. I'm sorry, Mom, you I'm not allowed. No, Jesus is subverting the common practice of setting a table only for those who can return the favor, meaning seeing the common table as a transaction. I give to you, you give to me, we all get along. Because if we see the table that way, then we will only believe that we are there as a transaction. If we see the table that way, we will never settle into, this is gift. I am wanted. In order to really live into the gift of God's table for us, we must be freed into the capacity to include others as gift as well. Another time, uh, in a passage we read this morning, there's a Roman centurion who comes and expresses deep faith in Jesus' ability to heal. And Jesus proclaims, Truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then he says something really interesting. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will take their places at banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus is saying, 
that the people you would most expect to get this common table are going to be offended by who comes and sits at it. Because people are going to show up that you didn't think belonged, and it's going to be offensive. And some people are going to refuse to have anything to do with it. That's what God's kingdom is like. The least expected are going to show up. And it's up to us if we're going to sit there or not with them. The rhythm of common table undoes our assumptions about belonging. Because belonging is not a commodity. It's not a payment. It's not a reward. And it's not a status. <clears throat> belonging is always gift. Because this is what God is like. Quick-eyed love, urging us to sit and eat, eat simply because we are loved. Now, that sense of belonging and the sense of others' belonging is a beautiful idea, and it's one that takes time to sink into our character. Because what we want is to become the kind of people for whom inclusion at the table is just part of who we are. We don't want to grit our teeth and welcome those who resent uh, just as an outward expression. What we want is to come not to resent others. And this is why we cultivate common table week in and week out. As we see the vision of the beauty of living the common table, as we intend to learn from Jesus how to extend and how to sit at this common table, God helps us find the means to grow the common table into our being. Now, this is a personal thing, uh, how you cultivate the, temp the, the common table in your experience. But I want to offer a few suggestions to get our thinking going. Uh, these are all, again, only suggestions that you might tweak for your particular life and experience. So you might, for example, try setting an empty chair at your table at a meal. And then think and discuss who is invited to this table but isn't, isn't going to come at this time. Who would you invite, but they are not willing to come and take that empty chair? Or who would you rather did not come and sit in this empty chair right now? And then allow whatever comes up to become part of your conversation with God, with trusted friends, a counselor. This can be tender ground. Sometimes we have good reasons for not wanting someone to come at our table, and that takes work to get through uh, with those that we love. Another very practical thing to do is just simply start inviting people to your table. Now, I know we're all out of the habit of this. COVID made us really nervous about people joining our spaces. Uh, and uh, Gary and I have reflected, for example, on how easy it is to just default to staying at home and doing our thing, because this is what we did for two years. But if your health and circumstances allow it, who might you invite? Have a potluck. Doesn't have to, cooking doesn't have to fall all on you. Have people bring stuff. Contribute to making your table. Cook together. Particularly, I would encourage us to be looking for opportunities to invite those who are single, who are widowed, whose lives don't allow for much companionship and community. I say this as someone who was single well into my 30s and felt very isolated as my community coupled up and disappeared into their respective nuclear family units. I've heard a lot of people say, um, no one wants to be at my messy, chaotic family dinner with kids screaming and eat dino chicken nuggets with mac and cheese. But for me, one family at my previous church asked me to sit and eat with them once a week, and that chaos and hot dogs meant the world to me. 
Another practice is to seat ourselves at unusual or uncomfortable tables. Now, of course, we should use wisdom here. There's no need to put ourselves into the way of harm. But that story I told about oriented to love, uh, that was a difficult space. And it's not one I would necessarily uh, think every LGBTQ person should dive into. Uh, that was particularly my space to be in. But we might consider, are there spaces that I could enter where I can put myself into a listening posture with those I disagree? Where I have to lean on God's word, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Is there someone who disagrees with me politically, theologically, who is capable of sharing a table with me? Now, that's an important consideration. Are they capable of sharing a table with me? Now, if that practice intrigues you, there's some great organizations like the On Being Project or the People's Supper, and they create guides for guided conversation across difference and across disagreement. They're, they're beautiful. I think this could be for us a beautiful expression of our hope in a common table that we don't yet fully see. An act of trust that God really does want all people, even those we don't understand or would exclude, seated at the table. All of our tables are a foreshadowing. Every dinner, every meal, every breakfast, every TV tray propped up on the couch, they're a foreshadowing of a world integrated by divine love. And that can be hard to believe at times. We sit at fractured tables. We sit at incomplete tables, tables with empty chairs. We know of tables that we are not now welcome to join. We become protective of our tables, and we want to keep them beautiful and sacred by excluding anyone who might harm that peaceful space. We've visited churches who don't let us come forward to share at their expression of common table because we're the wrong kind of Christian. All around us are tables that fail to be the common table. And yet, we believe this common table is the heart of God. Near the pinnacle of our sacred story is a scene in which Jesus gathers his disciples around a table, and at this table are both followers and betrayers, yet Jesus shares a meal with them all. He breaks bread and pours wine and says, this is me for you. Sharing at a common table reminds us that God sustains everything, includes everyone, and is drawing us all together to feast as one. It facilitates a way of living that recognizes God's sustenance, makes room for others, and urges us toward generosity and self-giving. Week in, week out, we gather around this table. We pray for the will and heart of God to find expression in this world. We proclaim together, in Christ, all belong at this table. And this rhythm, over time, seeps into our hearts and our minds and our bodies and prepares us more and more to extend the welcome. Whoever you are, whatever your circumstances, you too belong at this common table. Will you pray with me? God, as we come to your common table today, may we think on those who are not at this table with us yet. May we learn more and more how to extend our welcome to them. And may we come to know more and more that we truly belong.
hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.